we need to be really focused on those really simple messages and providing information that is of high quality and trustworthy. And that's more and more important now because of all the kind of misinformation that's out there online. And it's much harder for people to distinguish what can be trusted. Hello, and thank you for checking out this episode of the From the Frontline podcast. Each episode, we'll be interviewing a key voice from the NHS or social care to discuss some of the key challenges and changes that impact the treatment and care we all receive. Throughout this podcast series, we'll be answering some of the big questions which face health and social care today, such as why are there massive delays in A&E, how do we beat the NHS winter crisis, and how can we make the future of digital health accessible for all. We hope that you'll finish each episode knowing a little bit more about the major NHS headlines and what needs to change if we are to deliver the best possible care for everyone in the UK. The From the Frontline podcast is brought to you by Healthcoms Consulting, who are part of the PLMR group. We hope you enjoy this episode. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about how the NHS communicates with patients. We'll be looking particularly at what NHS communication currently looks like, where it goes wrong, and what should the future look like. We're delighted to have Sophie Randall, Director of the Patient Information Forum, with us today. Sophie, thank you so much for being with us. Before we get into the conversation about how the NHS communicates with its patients, it would be great to just have a little bit of background as to the uh, the Patient Information Forum and the work that you do. Um, Thanks for having me. Well, the Patient Information Forum is a UK membership body for health information producers, and that covers producers from all sectors. So we have a lot of NHS bodies, national charities, academic institutions and private sector companies um, in membership. There's about a thousand plus individual people involved in the organisation, representing around 200 organisations. We're UK wide. We've been running for 25 years and we operate the UK's um, quality mark for health information or trust mark called the PIFTIC, which has 10 robust criteria um, and 100 organisations are now working towards that scheme and are credited, including some of the major national charities like Mind and Cancer Research UK, Guys and St Thomas's NHS Trust and increasingly some pharmaceutical companies too. So that's great because it's all about getting accessible information to patients that they can use and understand, which is our vision. It's really amazing work and we're really grateful for you to for taking the time to chat to us on the podcast. I suppose my, my guess is that people have different experiences as to how the NHS will communicate with them. Um, people are probably familiar with getting letters through their letterbox, uh, through getting text alerts from GPs. Um, and there's probably been lots of changes that have taken place over the last couple of years during COVID, necessitated by the pandemic. I just suppose in terms of a broad overview of what NHS communication looks like with its patients, if you were to summarise to someone, what would be the sort of key elements that you'd pick out? So I think the the answer to that question is very complex and it will vary locally depending on the systems that are operated by local trusts and local GP surgeries. And increasingly those sit within an integrated care system. But when people think about the NHS, they think of this one single body and we know that it's incredibly trusted by patients in terms of the information it provides. Um, Most people now will use the NHS website as their first port of call for health information. Um, We know that there are millions of users monthly on the NHS website, and we know that that went up massively during the pandemic. We also know that there are now 28 million users of the NHS app. So that is another key means of people communicating with health services. Um, 
And people aren't just looking for words now. They want images and they want video. And actually, the NHS's YouTube channel has about 130,000 subscribers and its views are going up uh, exponentially all the time. So all that's great because that's getting trusted health information into the public domain. We know as well that the public health messaging employed by the NHS has changed massively by the pandemic. Um, and those techniques that have been, been employed by the NHS to reach out to people during the pandemic need to be extended and to, to be used again. So that those types of messaging that works, simple messages of, about um, protecting yourself, getting vaccinated, living well, that those, those types of messages via social media and video continue to be used. And I think that's a really important point as we go into this winter season with flu and COVID pressures. Um, but I also would say that the charity sector produce is a huge contributor to health information and that once people have got past that initial bit of health information, they will then go to the charities for information and support. And the NHS could certainly do a lot more to signpost um, to organisations that are trusted, particularly our PIFTIC member organisations that have put themselves through a trusted resource. So all of this is really important and digital health records are also really brilliant for patients. If they're co-produced and they're done in the right way and the information in them is easy to access, use and understand, they can be a huge bonus for patients communicating with their healthcare teams. If they can send messages, if they can look at their discharge summaries and if they can look at their appointments. It's in people's hands and it's in their pockets and it's brilliant. It's particularly so where it integrates with the NHS app seamlessly as it does in Nottinghamshire. But we have to remember there are 5 million people who are digitally excluded and who are not using the internet at all. And these are kind of some of the most vulnerable people in the community. Um, and I think if I'm right in saying, I think the latest data that I've seen is that for people over 70, I think two in five are in this group. So we need to be really mindful of that group. And those are the ones that are completely offline. There are more who will struggle with digital skills and digital poverty. So when we're designing these services, it's really important that we think about um, including everybody and reaching people who are not digitally enabled. So we've got this ma mass of communication methods that you know people can use to speak to their, their GP and their healthcare providers. They can use digital conferencing as well. But actually, what we see, um, so much of healthcare communication between patients and practitioners is verbal. And I think that's where some of the real improvements can be made. That's a really helpful overview. And I suppose it's interesting from my perspective, so much of the conversation that is ongoing around improving digital access to care and improving uh, patient records, digitising patient records. But so often it is that digitally illiterate group of the population that are the most, uh, who most often use our NHS services and are most in need of care. So I suppose it's a really interesting challenge from that perspective in terms of how we involve that portion of our society um, in these conversations. You mentioned a couple of the challenges and you spoke about them a little bit. In terms of what the challenges look like in terms of how we communicate with patients and what could be done better, I suppose if there were some key headlines that you'd really pick out, we've spoken a little bit about that digitally excluded cohort, but what would you really point to as the key issues that we should be considering? I think health literacy as well as digital accessibility is massively important. And I think still too often um, 
we see stuff that's coming out of the NHS that's too complex for people to understand and, and use and act upon. And I think there's two key elements to that. There's the medical information um, itself, which can be very difficult to read and understand. Um, and then there's the whole jargon that goes with the NHS as well. So I think the key message is to keep the communication simple. Um, and then that provides other benefits as well. Because if you're reaching uh, more people who can understand the information, um, then you're going to have a better impact. And we certainly saw that in COVID um, with the sort of use of very simple messaging around um, protecting yourself, protecting the NHS. Um, and then that can easily be translated into other languages because you're not using very many words, you're using pictures. So you're reaching more people by keeping the messages simple and you're making it accessible to them. So I think that's a really key point. And certainly when we look at the um, content standard that we've recently worked with, on, with NHS England, that keeping that health, that health literacy in mind is fundamentally crucially important. So I think that's fine for written material. We can say um, we can aim for those sort of reading ages of around 10, 11 to 14 for, for written material. But I think we also need to be really transferring that those principles about health literate information that people can understand into consultations. And I think there's still quite a bit of work to do in that. And I think that's a really interesting point because I mentioned earlier that so much of that conversation um, is the way patients are getting information. So we looked at, we did a survey last year about maternity care and um, particularly about information for induction of labour. And we had two, nearly two and a half thousand women respond in two weeks. So it was, a, you know, t clearly touching a nerve. And 56% of those women had only received verbal information from the healthcare professionals about induction. They hadn't had any written information to refer to. There's two issues with that. One, it can be quite hard to retain the information that's given verbally. If you're in a consultation and you're in a slightly stressful situation, like imminently about to give birth or, or thinking you might be. Um, but also sometimes I think because of the pressures in the system, we know that healthcare professionals might not have the time that they want at the moment. And so some of those women, in fact, the majority didn't feel that they'd had a supportive conversation and they didn't feel that the information had prepared them properly for induction. So... I think we really need to think about how we are communicating with patients and we need to listen to what matters to them and helping them make decisions. And actually quite often what had mattered to those women was actually they wanted some information about risks and benefits, which is fundamental to shared decision making, as we know. And there is a lot of work going on by the personalised care team to um, improve this sort of kind of verbal communication, improve health literacy, improve shared decision making. And I just think we need to see the support and the time given to healthcare professionals to put that into practice. I think that's really, really fundamentally important. And I've just had this own experience, this experience with my own son who had an uh, accident at work and injured a tendon in his hand. He then got an infection. He's had to have two further surgeries. And although appointment information has come via text message or phone, that's all fine. The information we've actually had about what happens next, what the extent of the damage is, has all been verbal. And it's come from different consultants at different points. And even for me, who I would consider myself to be highly health literate, I found that quite difficult to really have an accurate picture of what's going on. His discharge summaries are in a personal health record. But they're quite also medical and quite difficult to understand. His test results are in a personal health record, but we're then looking, linking out to see what those tests are for. It doesn't actually tell you what, what's what. So I think that's quite a complex picture in one small 
accident emergency admission that went into elective care. You've got verbal communication, you've got text communication, you've got the written discharge summaries that you were given and are then uploaded into a personal health record. So it's quite a lot for, for people to manage. And I think where you've got that personal health record, that's a really valuable tool because you can keep it all together. But I still think there's a way to go to make sure that the content we're putting into those health, health records is health literate and easy for people to use. Um, so that would be, that's one of my key messages is make this easy for people to use and understand. Um, because we know that, well, the research from 2015 told us that 40% of the population struggle to understand health information when it's written. Um, and that goes up to 60% when numbers are involved. And when we're talking about risk-benefit communication, we really need to be able to look at how we communicate those numbers. And there is a great deal of work being done on that. Um, the NHS has just uh, launched its first range of national decision aids. Um, but the challenge with any national programme within the NHS is to get it implemented locally. Um, and so what we would really like to see is kind of more, you know, kind of, a kind of greater uptake of these national high, highly um, high quality decision tools um, being rolled out across the NHS so people get consistent information wherever they live. We'll come on to what the future of communication with patients might look like and I, my guess is that we'll probably touch on what personalised care records should look like in the future. One thought that I just had is that from where I'm sitting it felt as if there was a shift in the way that the NHS communicated with patients during COVID-19, where it wasn't just about an individual course of treatment. There was a dialogue that was ongoing as to the situation in the NHS more broadly and informing patients on essentially where the NHS was at, what was going on at a system and a structural level. There's lots of talk in the media about a winter crisis and backlog and waiting times. My guess is that could be quite anxiety inducing for a lot of people. They hear that, but often won't have a lot of context beyond the headlines that they'll read or that they'll hear. I just wonder whether there's a, there's a role for the NHS in continuing that lesson from COVID in terms of how it communication, communicates with patients more broadly, in terms of how it communicates the current challenges that it might be facing. I just wonder whether you had any thoughts on that. Personally, I think we learned loads in COVID and I think we should continue to implement those lessons. And I think that's a key lesson. Um, when we did some research on um, how people are accessing care in COVID-19, uh, so that was in the, in the back in the first year of the pandemic, the first summer of the pandemic, so that was 2020, and it was summer of 2020, and we surveyed people with long-term conditions to ask what they were doing about accessing care. And actually, lots of people were avoiding care because they were concerned um, about putting a burden on the NHS or, or contracting COVID. And actually, what we found was people wanted up-to-date information about what was happening in their local system and whether it was okay and safe for them to go to care and, and if it would be putting a burden on, on the service. And I think we have to balance those messages quite carefully um, because we do know that some in some of that messaging about avoiding going to care stopped people who had cancer systems symptoms going and contacting, um, get, contacting their GPs for help. So we have to balance the needs of um, how we communicate patients um, about that and making sure that people who are displaying high-risk symptoms do go and get care. But at the same time, we know that there are um, 
We know that people are keen to support the NHS and so if they can understand what's happening in their local system and know when to access or how to access alternative services because there are lots of really good alternative services. And I think we're also part of the um, self-care forum and the um, self-care collaborative. And I think under t sort of getting patients to fully understand what self-care means, which is not no care. And I think self-care in itself is almost a bit of a, another jargon word, but it's actually things like using your local pharmacy more regularly, using them as a first port of call, then going to see if you actually need to go and get a GP appointment for this or if this is something that could be solved more locally or if there are a greater uptake to of social prescribing services so that people can be um, pushed into alternative routes. But I think part of the difficulty at the moment is that while people are having difficulties accessing GP surgeries uh, particularly, they are perhaps going to end up in A&E um, when they shouldn't be there. So I think we have to be really clear about what we're asking people to do in terms of accessing services and care. Um, but I do think it is better to acknowledge that there's a there's an issue um, and, uh, and tell people what they should be doing locally so people can make an informed choice. But I also think as we look at things like flu and COVID vaccine um, going into this winter season, which are obviously going to be really important, both for NHS staff to... Um, go and be vaccinated and for, and for patients so the, the um, service isn't overwhelmed. We really need to use those messages that we did and the lessons we learned in COVID. We should be doing things like explaining why. Why, why should I do this? Because I've just had a text inviting me for my, G, for my flu jab, which just says I'm eligible for it. It doesn't say why. So unless I watch the news and I, and I didn't have a brother in Australia where I know they've just had a really bad winter flu season, um, I perhaps wouldn't really give it much thought well i could do it or i couldn't but i think we should be saying to people actually we're expecting to have a really bad flu season we haven't had one for a couple of years your immunity's low it's in your best interest to come and be vaccinated now and it's the same messages it will protect you it will protect the nhs we need to be getting those out more widely via campaigns on social media tv advertising that type of thing if we're really serious about um getting people to to, to do this um to protect their health I suppose you've, you've probably touched on it there a little bit in terms of what immediate steps need to be taken in terms of how do we broaden the reach of the information that we're trying to communicate to parents. My guess from our conversation is that there's a place for streamlining the information that is included in personalised care records and in making that more accessible. In terms of what that future of patient information should look like, just thinking whether I'm on the right track in terms of those points and what else you would add into what that should look like going forward. Well, I think, you know, we, we have a national standard for health information, that the, which we've worked with the NHS to produce, which is a new NHS content standard. That's for England anyway. Um, and we have our PIFTIC criteria, which are... Um, UK-based and, and a more robust, but people doing the NHS content standard, which is a self-certified scheme, will sort of be getting PIFTIC ready. We've got accreditation schemes for app, operated, apps operated by Orca. And we have the accessible information standard, which is massively out of date now. I'll just say that. So that is that covers the information provision for people with special needs. So it covers things like letters. It covers things like text messages. 
and verbal communication, but it doesn't cover digital tools at the moment. And I think one of the other areas that we're really keen to see more action taken on is translation, because when we're looking at tackling health inequality, if you can't actually read the information or understand the information as provided, that's that's just going to layer on health inequality. So we would certainly like to see national projects like the NHS app available in in, um, commonly spoken languages other than English. But I think it's really important that those three, we've mentioned national standards, that those are implemented across the board. Um, there's too much inconsistency in trusts at the moment. And so all of this, all these things we've been talking about, about health literacy, um, we need to be really focused on those simple, um, really simple messages and providing information that is of high quality and trustworthy. And that's more and more important now because of all the kind of misinformation that's out there online and it's much harder for people to distinguish what can be trusted and what isn't which is why it's really good to see initiatives like YouTube's Health Shelf which the NHS is collaborating on coming to fruition so that trusted content is raised up the um, up the rankings and I, th- I think it's important to recognize that health information is is something that the NHS can't do on its own and that there are a whole whole host of really fantastic charities and private sector providers out there who are providing really high quality information and they're really investing in it and it's those charities that are providing the support particularly for people with long-term conditions who might only see their healthcare professionals a couple of times a year. So what we need to see more of is GPs, um, and hospital doctors and any kind of healthcare professional that somebody might get in contact with is signposting out to those areas of support because quite often what we hear is patients are told not Google <laughs> and so they obviously do um, or they'll be given maybe one or they'll just be given the NHS website and actually there's a whole host of really good support out there we need to be signposting to it much more effectively because that will take pressure off the NHS too. So I think um, what we need is to make sure that those lessons around health literacy are really learnt and that everything that goes out to patients is simple and easy to understand and use so they can act upon it. And I think if we we just give one example of that, just to round off, you know, discharge um, letters. We know we hear loads of things about discharge letters um, and people just find them really hard to understand. So we are going to be working on a project where we're going to do a review of some discharge letters and and, and have a look at um, how they, how patients perceive those discharge letters. But one of the things that we come across over and over again is that people will be told their results are positive and they'll think that's good news. So if you've had cancer screening and you're told the results are positive, you might think actually that's great news. Or if you're told the results are negative, i.e. an absence of, you'll you'll think that's bad news when in fact it's good news. So if, if we could just change the language around some of those letters. So I saw one that was very much in that language and talking about next steps, but it was all so medical. If we could have, if that letter could have just said, dear Mr. You've recently had this um, this uh, kind of investigation, um, we're pleased to tell you you haven't got cancer, then they would understand that straight away. And I think if we, this is the sort of language we need to get to, a more patient-focused language, um, and that needs to go throughout the whole system and it needs to be embedded in personal health records, it needs to be embedded in the app, it needs to be embedded in all the communication that goes out from the NHS at local level to patients, whatever format that's in. And we do have to remember that we need to take the digitally excluded with us. So we did a survey in 2019, just before the pandemic, and we found around 50% of organisations in health, so that included NHS trusts and 
um, charities and other other private sector organisations, about 50% of them were looking at the equalities of impact when they did um, a digital transformation programme. But actually, we'd like to see that getting to 100%. And I think there's lots that can be done via social prescribing. There are lots that can be done via skills training. We also know there's an army of digital carers, if you like, who are out there supporting patients. But making sure people have got the skills that they need to access health information and to know what's trustworthy and what's not is really, really important. So I think those are the things. It's like we need to upskill the population in health and digital literacy and we need to be health and digital literacy friendly as organisations if we're going to have better preventative healthcare. Sophie, thank you so much for your time uh, today. It's been a really interesting conversation and I hope that those that are listening have taken a couple of key points away that can really help inform not only how they go about their work and the issues that they focus on, but also how they engage with their local NHS and their um, health professionals that they come into contact with in the course of a this period of treatment or care. So really grateful for your time. And we'll be definitely be following this issue um, across the next couple of months. But um, yeah, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the From the Frontlines podcast. If you have any thoughts about our conversation or would like to get involved in a future episode, please email fromthefrontline at healthcomsconsulting.co.uk. If you'd like to chat about our work as one of the UK's top health and social care public affairs agencies, please visit our website, healthcomsconsulting.co.uk. Thanks again for listening.